Hello, and welcome to Being Boss, a podcast for creative entrepreneurs. I'm Emily Thompson. And I'm Kathleen Shannon. I'm Natalie Frank, and I am Being Boss. Today, we're talking about community over competition with Natalie Frank. As always, you can find all the tools, books, and links we reference on the show notes at www.beingboss.club. Hey there, bosses. We know you're getting a lot of stuff done. You're checking off those to-dos and wearing a lot of hats in your creative business. But just because you can do it all doesn't mean you should. Take accounting. You know it's an essential part of your business, but becoming a self-taught accountant is only going to distract you from what you really want to be doing all day. FreshBooks Cloud Accounting will allow you to save your time and energy on administrative tasks by making keeping track of your books ridiculously easy. FreshBooks keeps your money organized with easy-to-use features like invoicing, time tracking, creating estimates, tracking expenses, late payment reminders, project collaboration, online payments, and so much more. So whether your creative career is still a side hustle or you're fully supporting yourself with your entrepreneurial endeavors, FreshBooks makes being boss a whole lot easier. Get a free 30-day trial of FreshBooks right now. Go to freshbooks.com slash being boss and enter being boss in the how did you hear about us section. Natalie Frank Hayes is an entrepreneur, mobilization marketer, community builder, and neuroscience nerd. As one of the founders of the Rising Tide Society and the head of community at HoneyBook, she leads tens of thousands of creatives and small business owners while fostering a spirit of community over competition. She lives in San Francisco with her husband, consumes copious amounts of coffee every day, and enjoys traveling to new cities with a camera in hand. Natalie, we are so excited to have you on the show. You get requested all the time. People are like, you have to talk to Natalie. So we are so excited to finally have you on. I'm so honored. I am so honored to be on this show. I have been a fan of y'all for a very, very, very long time, and I love what you're about, and I love how you empower people, and I am just honored. I really am. I'm so honored. Well, I think that we share a lot of values. You know, one of the things that we were saying early on is a rising tide lifts all boats, and we've always been about community over competition, and people are like, okay, you literally need to talk to Natalie of Rising Tide, duh. And so for those of our listeners who aren't familiar with you or your story, can you give us a little bit of background like on your entrepreneurial journey and how you got, like, tell us where you're at now and how you got there? Absolutely. So I was raised by a single mom in a small town just outside of D.C. I mean, it was sort of an upbringing where I was always encouraged to try new things and explore and discover. And when I was going into the final year of high school, heading off to college, I discovered photography. And I also discovered that unlike a lot of the other jobs that I had worked up until that point where I punched in a time clock and then punched out when I was done, photography was a way that I was able to make money that was on my own terms, that allowed me to do exactly what my my heart wanted. I was able to connect with people. And long story short, I fell in love with the the craft, the ability to capture images and the business, the ability to actually monetize this passion that I loved. And so I went through college, and as I came to the close of of that sort of season of my life as well, I made that decision not to get a job. I looked at the opportunity to go out into the traditional workforce, and everything about it to me just felt like death. 
It really did. I mean, I just, I looked out and I said, wow, I can't spend the rest of my life in a cubicle. This is not going to happen. I love this camera. I love what I'm able to do with it. I'm going to go full time. So my journey really started as a photographer. I graduated from college. I built my photography business. I scaled it. And, you know, anyone, and you guys know this, anyone who's built a business knows that it is not, you know, rainbows and butterflies. It is struggle and hardship and joy like you'd never imagine, but nonetheless, the struggle is there. And what I found is that as my business grew and as I actually made more money and I became more successful in all of the worldly definitions of that word, I also found myself feeling increasingly alone. And I found myself feeling overwhelmed by the isolation of getting up in the morning, sitting behind a computer, not interacting with other human beings, and trying to build this thing that I was so passionate about without true community. And knowing that other people understood my pain, there were other people out there who had endured those same struggles, but they were my competitors. And therefore, in the current climate, I wasn't able to connect with them. I wasn't able to reach out to them. And so that really led me. What year was this? When did you graduate college? So I graduated from college in 2012. I ran the business full time in the, uh, basically in the years after that, leading up to the launch of Rising Tide, which was in the summer of 2015. So, okay. So it's relatively it, fresh. It's new. It's still, I mean, again, it, it's funny because I think that due to the scale and size of it, people often assume it's just been around forever. I mean, but- that's kind of what I thought. Yes, I, suppose. I, I get that a lot. I get that a lot. But no, I mean, we're, we're very new. And, um, you know, we, we created Rising Tide because of those feelings. And because, you know, I'm sitting there at a dinner table with two of my friends in that small town that I mentioned talking about business. They were wedding photographers as well. And we just realized that what we had as a group, the ability to sit down and share the struggle and carry the burdens together and not go through it alone – we wanted that for everyone. And I, I realized as well, if, if we don't build sustainable models of what it looks like to be a creative entrepreneur, and by sustainable, I don't, you know, I don't mean what maybe most people would think I mean by that. I literally mean waking up in the morning and feeling okay, mental health, check, like balance in your life, check, people to, to lean on, to talk to, the simple and fundamental elements of, of human, uh, you know, community and, and the need for us to be social creatures. If that's not established and there aren't, you know, organizations or foundational structures that enable that within your journey, it is, it's going to be not only harder, but I don't believe, I really don't believe that you can go at it alone and be successful in the long run. That's, it's a, it's not a long game plan. And so we wanted to change it. So we started by just getting people together for coffee in our hometown. I was using the hashtag community over competition. It's funny because at the time no one had, it was tiny, like no one talked about it. No one had heard of it, but we were using it. And all of a sudden, it was like someone just took a match and lit a fire. The pains that I had been experiencing, other people had been experiencing. And that's why Rising Tide grew. It wasn't some magic growth hack. Everyone always asked me, how did you do it? What was the magic? And <laughs> the truth is there was a pain and we provided an option for a solution. And it was that simple. We were in the right place at the right time and we surrounded ourselves with phenomenal human beings who were willing to gather people together in their hometowns just like we were doing in ours. And we built a global playbook with local execution. 
So we created a foundational structure that said, hey, every month we're going to have a topic. We're going to talk about business. Here are all the tools you need to lead your local city. And then we let the leaders truly run and run wild and feel ownership in their local area. And with that came growth. And we went from nine chapters to 100, from 100 chapters now, you know, two and a half, almost three years later, to over 400 chapters around the United States, Canada, and the world. And I should mention, it's free. This is led by volunteers. This isn't, you know, again, it's it's not and never was meant to be rising tide a business it was a community and it was a passion project that kind of exploded and um you know for that it's it's these leaders that really drive it home okay i have so many questions about that because as yeah. we know community engagement takes a lot of resources yes. and so while it's not a business yep. you do have to make some money to in order to just organize that and make all that happen. And I think community has become such a huge aspect to how creative entrepreneurs do run business, whether they're a part of a community or trying to build community themselves. I think it is an essential component that we've all seen is imperative, right? Either finding your business bestie or a group of people or a mastermind or something like Rising Tide. But I want to rewind to the building a photography business while you're in college, because I can just imagine like some college students listening to this and being like, wait, what? How? Right. So it's kind of it reminds me of how one time I heard that Walt Disney started Mickey Mouse because like he wanted to make some money. And I feel like that's impossible for anyone to do today. Like, you know, I want to make some money. So I'm going to draw like a cute little cartoon character and it's going to be the big thing. Right. Yeah. Um. So it seems really probably to some listeners like improbable. Like, how did you manage college and building a photography business and then also there was something in your story that caught my ear as far as like really building it like did you feel like you weren't actually building a business while you were in college and then after you graduated and chose not to get a job that that's whenever it became real deal and like how did that mindset shift really affect things so that's a lot of questions I'm so bad about like asking a million (laughs) questions in like one question (laughs) I will do my best to answer the million questions too I no, look, here. here's the reality. I built that business in college because I didn't have another choice. I, I mentioned being raised by a single mom, and I started working from the day I was able to get a worker's permit. My mom sacrificed so much for my sister and I. And, you know, for me, it, it was never a question of whether I would work during college. It was, you know, more of a necessity. So like I said, it, I had options. I could go work at a department store. I could work at a coffee shop. I could work at a restaurant. Or I could photograph. And I I chose to to photograph. So for me, it wasn't really an option. I I knew I needed to generate income. And I should say too, you know, I paid my way through school. I had a lot of support from um, financial aid, but I also paid off all my student loans with that business. So it it was, you know, not a fun hobby for me. It was really something that I needed. And actually, I will add this too. My first year of college, I was at uh, almost on, not quite a full ride, but nearly a full ride at a state school. And as that business grew, I realized that I could actually afford to go to to a private college and I transferred my sophomore year um, to Penn. And I never would have been able to do that had it not been for that business starting to to take shape. It came with sacrifices. I was in a sorority, but I missed nearly every event because I had to take the train on Friday nights back down to Baltimore to shoot weddings on Saturday and take the train back on Sunday to make it to my class for Monday. And I did that for years. So how did I do it? I didn't have a choice. I think it took grit and resilience and a desire. I said, you know what? I would rather have this season of my life be insanely hard and and difficult from the standpoint of time management and and not having a ton of free time so that I can pursue something that I really feel strongly about and learn and grow and be challenged in a unique way and own my own destiny. The autonomy side of it, the freedom side of it was really appealing. 
then just go work for somebody else. Not that there's anything wrong with doing that. It just wasn't in my DNA. And, you know, I kind of blame my mom. Like I, I watched my mom hold everything together in our lives and just her amount of, of work ethic and her just ability to persevere, I think really shaped my perception of what I was capable of. And so therefore I, I never really allowed myself to, to sit on my laurels. I was constantly working for good and bad. There's pros and cons to that, by the way. Totally. Um, Wait, and so what was your major in school? So I actually, I majored in visual neuroscience and psychology of seeing. So I was in a particular program that studied the visual cortex, the brain, and we focused on, you know, how we perceive the world, how we see it, understand it, and interpret it. Um, Because I didn't, I didn't want to major in photography because I was actually learning everything I needed to learn in photography from YouTube, from getting my hands dirty, going out and photograph. Like I didn't want to major in the thing that I knew I could gain in the real world. Uh, so I pursued something that I felt like would enable me to both run my business better and understand, you know, human decision making and and the psychology behind how we how we see. So that's yeah. And I'm a nerd. I don't that's know. I, I'm a so nerd. Wild. So nerd. that's okay. We are too, especially Good. Emily. <laughs> Thanks, Kathleen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just say that because Emily and her major, I might, I feel like I'm probably the only creative entrepreneur who is an art major. You know what I mean? Like, I think most of us were lawyers or scientists or whatever and got artsy with it. So then did you imagine that your job, sorry, I'm like so hung up on this, but no, I think that fine. we've got some younger listeners who are pursuing this kind of decision making. Yes. Did you imagine that you were going to get a job then in that field? Like, was that the game plan? And then whenever you're like, you know what, I'm not going to go get a job. Was it the photography career that you were really going to double down on? And like, what was that like? Yes. So I looked out at what the options would be for someone with a very strange major that is a combination of art, art history, psychology, and neuroscience that knew they didn't want to go to med school, which is, again, a lot of people in my major actually went on to medical school. And they used that major because it sounded funky. And so it gave them a, ch- a, you know, a chance above the biology and the typical, the typical pre-med majors. And I knew that wasn't the route for me. So, you know, I really was looking at options and everything from like creative strategy to potentially working in, let's say, like a department store and actually doing visual design and thinking through how to increase sales by, you know, changing the the way in which you structure everything from a window display to a magazine advertisement to because there's there's neuroscience and neuromarketing behind that. And so those those were some of my options. And you know, I don't really know, to be honest, when that epiphany happened for me. If I if I am being brutally vulnerable, I think it was the moment in which my grandmother passed away. I was a junior in college and my, I, you know, again, I mentioned being raised by a single mom. My grandmother also then stepped in and was like my dad, you know, and, and so I had a village surrounding me and she was much more of a parent than a grandparent. And when she passed, you know, right before she passed, she did make a comment to me. She said, I can't imagine you working for anyone else. She's like, I just don't see you ever working for anyone else. I can't imagine it. And um, I kind of laughed and I was like, what do you, what do you mean, my mom? What do you mean? And she's like, I don't know, Nat, I just, I just want you to be happy. And I don't, I don't see you ever being happy for somebody else. And, you know, it was a fleeting comment. It was maybe three weeks before she passed away, but something about it, it just hit me. And I think, you know, I can't really say like, when did I decide not to go get the job? When did I decide? I think it was the moment I realized my life was short, my time was limited, and I refused. I absolutely refused to waste a single second of it. And losing my grandmom, I think, just pushed that to the forefront. And isn't it funny how things like that in our lives tend to do that? I mean, the last couple of years of, of my life have been just a, an ongoing journey of of that. And, um, you know, it, it's 
it's something that I think a lot of us go through and can relate to when we just realize the how fragile I think it is that life is. And I didn't I didn't want to waste a second of my life not giving this a shot. I would have rather failed and have tried than have spent my life asking like, what if I had done it? What if I had taken this business and not not gone the traditional route, you know? And I'd I'd rather try it, fail miserably, make a fool of myself, and then, you know, know that I'd given it my all and I, I had done it with with everything that I had. So yeah. I love this so much. And I think the thing that I admire the most is how like with your dear life, you hold on to the idea that you have a choice and you mm. like hold on to the fact that you have a choice um, and you make it without without looking at or at least seemingly without looking at what so much is expected or what the traditional route is and simply making the choice on your terms. I feel like so often, especially around like college age, you follow the crowd like people go to college they do the thing they go get the job and it's so much of it is unconscious I think where um where we just follow along and we do the thing and I think there it's so refreshing to hear someone who saw all along that you had the choice and also made it thank you that's really kind Okay, so the photography business, let's mm-hmm. stay on our timeline here. I'm so curious now. <laughs> so then after college, you got the photography business, mm-hmm. and are you still doing photography? So like what's happening now? Secretly on the down low, I will tell you that I am still shooting a little, but not professionally. So I have a wedding coming up in a couple weekends for a friend, and I obviously use use the skills that I've gained in that that period of my life for different things. And I photograph on the office, I shoot for fun, and I do some brand campaigns and things like that. But no, I actually now have transitioned fully into this new role of being head of community and working in tech and leading Rising Tide. So it's very different. Again, it's not anything I, I think initially foresaw. And um, this idea of, of giving yourself permission is interesting because I think I just have a tendency, whether it's good or bad, to just make my own way. Uh, you know, I, even even the title, I was the other day talking to someone and they're like, what does a head of community do? And I say, I do whatever I'm doing at the time. You know, like that changes day to day. That changes week to week. It will change month to month depending on what we're working on, what we're trying to do, our initiatives, our goals. Um, and but, so would yeah. you say that's like technically a day job, having be yeah. a head of community? Okay, so tell us a little bit about that. So you were like – Life is too short. I'm doing it on my own terms. And I do find that this hybrid is happening so much now where people are realizing that they can do more in the context of an organization where they do have more resources available to them than just going it alone, right? And so tell us a little bit about that decision. Yeah, so I'm one of the strange ones that went from entrepreneurship back into working for someone, right? Again, I, I like to though, throw in this little asterisk and say I work in tech and I work in a startup. So in a way, it does, you know, the amount of autonomy that I have and I communicate, I just had a meeting with the CEO right before this interview. So it's different than a traditional structure that, that many people are accustomed to. And I think with that, it's, it's probably the, the only reason truly that I, I can come in every day and love what I do. Um, but it's been, it's been an adventure. You know, I have learned more, I think, in the last two years of working alongside HoneyBook than I have uh, in many, many years prior to that because I was able to take all the knowledge and skills I gained from building a business and running every aspect of a company and then being able to hone in on just one. And so 
on one side, you know, it's very interesting to come into an organization where people are very specialized in their roles and you're the only one in the entire, think of it this way, in startups, it's all investor funds out here in Silicon Valley, unless you're bootstrapping it, like it's investor funds. To walk into a company and be the only one who's run a profitable business in the entire building from start to finish <laughs> on your own. I mean, it's it's an unbelievable right. and very strange feeling to know that there are people here that know far more than you in their specialty, but you are the only one that can, that has ever really run and seen the full picture of an org. And so it's been both a challenge and a, and a huge opportunity. There have been moments where I obviously get frustrated because I am so used to having full control and autonomy, uh, and other moments where I feel more empowered than I've ever felt, and I have mentors, and I've been able to tap into people that have been building communities and uh, you know writing books about building communities. And so I I think it's been this this nice hybrid of taking advantage of all that that the startup and tech world has to offer with you know making it very clear from day one that I'm not a typical employee. I am at the end of the day likely never going – I always say this to my boss. I say, this is the only job I'll probably ever have, and it's by virtue of a merger and an acquisition. You know, Other than that, I will probably go on and build something else next. That's my goal, or create something else next. And so it, it's been eye-opening. But I've also learned a lot. I really Wait, have. so do they own Rising Tide? I so, see. Okay. Wait, tell me more. I don't know anything about any of this. <laughs> yes. No, but this is a good question. We get this question a lot because in, again, in the startup world where a lot of creatives are their business, meaning, you know, they can scale by building employees under them or associates under them. But a lot of them, in the photography space especially, they are the business. So they can't really sell themselves anymore. It doesn't really work like that after they're done, perhaps. Perhaps, like you could have sold a shoe store or something of that nature. Uh, so in this case with Rising Tide, we built it to be a community. We had no interest in monetizing it, meaning I didn't want to charge people to attend meetings. I didn't foresee us hosting a big national conference because there were already so many amazing conferences out there that were popping up and boutique ones that were popping up. And again, I'm like, I'd rather empower them. Uh, we didn't see ourselves selling courses because there were already so many great people volunteering for our community that had individual courses that they were selling and teaching in their specialties. And so we started by trying to find sponsors and we got a couple different corporate sponsors that helped us to find some path to sustainability that didn't kind of take away from that, that agreement we all had to not charge for the meetings. And eventually we realized that we needed, we needed more support than that in order for us to transition out of, you know, focusing on photography full time. And for me to move into a role where I was building community full time now that it had grown. I, I needed to be able to do that. And so we just around that same time that we're having these conversations, we met up with HoneyBook. We had flown out here to basically launch our Tuesdays Together meeting in San Francisco. And we sat down at a table with them. And it was one of those moments where we just started to finish finish each other's sentences about the new economy that's emerging and the the way work is changing for people. And the future is freelance. Not even that the future, people say the gig economy is the future. A lot of those jobs will be replaced by robots and automation. Just wait till self-driving cars and the entire trucking industry, Uber, Lyft. That's what my husband does. Yes, my husband it's, it's going to change everything. Engineer. Totally. Yep. Yeah. It's going to change everything. So I want to be on the side of champion, championing human creativity and human passion for jobs that are going to shape the lives of all of us, that boundaries and borders no longer really matter. I mean, I could go on and on and on, but we started finishing each other's sentences. And uh, the CEO looked at me and he said, what do you need to, what do you need? Like, what do you need to grow this to make this happen? And, you know, ultimately that was the conversation that led to a partnership that led to, you You're know, like, I need some money. I need to be able to do it full time. <laughs> what I need is a salary. That's what I need right, so that I can I wake would, up in the morning and build this thing. 
I could only yeah. imagine that basically it becomes a nonprofit and taking up a lot of your time. Yeah. And I feel like Emily and I have had similar trajectories with even being boss, like creating this thing that's so much bigger than ourselves, that's free to so many people, but really having to find a way to monetize. So it sounds like kind of the best of both worlds. And we've had some amazing partnerships. So for us, like with FreshBooks, for example, has really afforded us the opportunity to keep doing it and making it free for creatives um, to continue to participate and be a part of that community. So I want to come back to just really the philosophy of community and competition. And maybe we'll dig back into the, like, the inner workings of like how do you actually make a community work and some tips and advice around that. But do you feel like you have a turning point or like a memorable moment where you realize that it really is about community over competition? Because I think that... With the popularity of the hashtag, people have kind of glossed over what that actually really truly means. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. Okay. So there have been many moments, many moments where I realized that this was the key. I think for me, it came from a fundamental understanding that we can either look at each other as enemies or we can look at each other as as comrades. We can look at each other from, from the standpoint of camaraderie that we're in this together. That is how – like if you boil everything down to those two fundamental viewpoints, some would say one is the idea of abundance. The other is the idea of scarcity, meaning, you know, there's not enough to go around. I – Okay, I have to, I have to win at every turn. I can't let anybody get any market share. I have to dominate always. I, you know, because, because if I don't, I'm going to lose. I'm going to crumble. I'm going to fail. If she succeeds, I'm not succeeding. If, if that person gets that opportunity, it's means I'm losing. It means I'm less than. It means I'm, I'm, I'm falling apart versus, you know, there's more than enough for all of us to go around that. If we stand together, we can actually change far more than if we stand alone. That innovation and the ability for all of us to forge our own paths, to blaze our own trails, it doesn't deter from other people's success, but rather it shows us sometimes just how far we can go. I like to say, you know, a glass ceiling isn't shattered by one woman. A glass ceiling is shattered oftentimes by hundreds of women over and over and over again, pushing farther in the boundaries that have ever been pushed before until one of them is able to break through. But if we pull each other down and we don't allow each other to climb and to succeed and to win, then we all get trapped and stay below the glass ceiling. And I think that that has always been a mentality for me that I've shared, uh, you know, in my local town when I would bring up an apprentice for photography. People would say, oh, but what if they steal your business? What if they learn all your secrets? And I say, what if they have something to offer me that I've never thought of? What if they know how to do something in marketing or social media because they're a little bit younger that I haven't learned yet? And so the mentality has to flip. You have to be able to turn that switch. And one of the biggest misconceptions about the idea of community over competition is that we don't believe in competition or that I don't champion the idea of competition. Because it's easy to go, oh, well, that's, you know, that doesn't make any sense. How could you not believe in competition? And here's the reality. I do believe in competition. I love healthy competition. Key word being healthy and also the fact that it's not community without. It's not saying community without competition or, you know, let's eliminate competition as a concept. It's saying people come first and the way in which we view competition and the idea of a competitive industry needs to change. It means that we can still, you know, compete for the same business. That's okay. That's healthy. That's, you know, the the free market. That's the way the economy works. But it means that we don't step on one another to get to the top. 
It means that we don't rip each other apart in order for ourselves to look better, to shine brighter. It also means that we don't, you know, discount the new voices, the newcomers, the dreamers, the the people coming up who have ideas and want to try something new and want to innovate and want to change. Um, you know, because I think that we do, we have a tendency to do that. We, we have a tendency once we've been in an industry for a long time to roll our eyes at people asking new questions and to diminish the ability or potential of somebody to actually succeed because we can't imagine if they didn't do it the hard way that there's another way. And, you know, I hear this a lot. There was a, a psychological study done with, with monkeys where they actually had a fire pole in, in, a, in a large room full of monkeys, and they hung fruit from the top of the fire pole. And when a monkey would climb up to get to the top to grab the fruit, someone at the top would squirt them with a water hose and push them back down. So they were never able to go up and get the fruit. But nonetheless, they would try, and they would try, and they would try time and time again to get the fruit. And one day, when they put the fruit out, they saw a monkey try to scamper up, and another monkey pulled them down. The fire hose didn't stop the monkey from getting the fruit. It was another monkey that said, no, 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 you can't get that. You can't do that. That thing up there, you're not going to get it because I didn't get it. None of us got it. And so why would you? And eventually they stopped even trying. And so the reality here is that this is what I see in the creative world at times where, you know, we get bitter if we can't succeed at something and how dare someone else do it. And that's that mindset of scarcity where what I want to challenge us to think about is this idea of supporting one another in the pursuit of success and actually championing, uh, you know, people to, to win and to succeed. And by cheering them on, it it doesn't take away from your success. It doesn't diminish your accomplishments or your ability to succeed. I think it actually empowers all of us to dream a little bit bigger and to do it in a way that I believe is more fulfilling. This Being Boss episode is brought to you by 2020, where creative entrepreneurs get authentic real-world stock photos. If you're looking to tell a true story about yourself or your brand, to deliver an honest message to your audience, the photos you use will matter. 2020 has crowdsourced millions of photos from a community of over 350,000 photographers, all available under a simple royalty-free license. Today, they're offering listeners of Being Boss a five-photo-free trial. To start yours right now, go to 2020.com slash being boss. That's the word 20, then 20.com slash being boss to get five free photos. I used to play roller derby and I loved whenever we would be in practice playing with each other, right? So Mm -hmm. we would split up our teams and anyone who's played any sport has this, like these scrimmages, right? And it always felt so good, even though in the moment we're competing, but to make each other better at our sport, right? So we're still trying to get those points and knock some girls down, but in the effort of helping each other get stronger and faster and better, right? And so that's kind of how I think of community and healthy competition. And for me also, you know, someone actually recently asked me this about me and Emily even, because we've, we've never had to compete against clients necessarily, but like if there's ever any competition and I'm like, listen, or, you know, my other friends that literally do the exact same thing that I do is that that client might not be a good fit for me. They might actually be a far better fit. And I kind of have enough trust and faith in general that if someone chooses someone else, it's for a good reason. Like, I don't want someone choosing me um, if it's not a good fit. So I like that. But how, speaking of scarcity and abundance, so abundance mm-hmm. is my word of the year. And I, oh, no st- yeah, it's my word of the year because I'm just interested in exploring that. And I'm reading a book about scarcity. Have you read that? 
that scarcity no, book. No. Do you know what the title is? Uh, see, I'm so bad with titles because I'm always reading stuff on my Kindle, you know? So, like, I never see, like, the front cover of the book. Okay, the book is called Scarcity. Hang on here. The book is called Scarcity, The New Science of Having Less and How It Defines Our Lives. So it's really breaking down the science. Like talk about nerding out on scarcity and the mindset and all of that. You should check it out. But it's really interesting. But I'm curious to hear from you. What are your tactics for really embracing that abundance mindset? Because it is so easy to fall into scarcity and comparison traps and all the things. Even earlier you were talking about like how do I monetize this thing? And you can kind of see a few of those things come through like, well, everyone has a course or well... Uh, there's a lot of other conferences. So how did you reconcile that first off? And then like, how do you get into that abundance mindset and stave off scarcity? That can be so easy. Yes. So I I like to think a lot of times about where our abundance mindset first comes from before worrying about how do I how do I push the scarcity off? How do I keep myself from falling down that rabbit hole of fear and comparison and, you know, kind of crumbling at, at the seams and For me, it comes back to confidence, self-confidence, knowing my worth and my value aren't weighted in in the number of followers I have or comments that I get on social media or dollars in my bank account, that my worth and my value is inherent, that it is, you know, unceasing, unchanging, and not tied to a metric that can be easily fluctuated or changed. What's going on over there? (laughs) Welcome to San Francisco. Where currently we have lovely sounds coming from every window. Sorry, you're doing so good. This is real life. Like you were like passionate. I am. And then I'm like, someone's backing up a piece of equipment. (laughs) This is, this is the, the, the life of, of living in the city and being in the city. I'm sorry about that, guys. No, you're fine. I mean, I, you know, it, it does. It goes back to, to this idea of, of self-confidence and self-worth and, and knowing your value and knowing that it isn't, it isn't tied to something that fluctuates or, or is fleeting or changes. I think it's easy for us to equate our, our worth, whether we're willing to admit it or not, to the way we look, our body type, our ability to adhere to society's definition of beautiful. Our, you know, amount of money in our bank account, the degrees or the title next to our name. We like to, to think that these things actually carry weight and value. And, um, in some ways they do. In a worldly way, they do. But we can't allow that to actually penetrate, I think, like the core of who we are. And, and for me, that's, that's where it starts. It's knowing that, you know, my, my value and my worth are not tied to those things. Therefore, you know, it's unceasing and unchanging. And and from that affirming myself, and I would encourage you guys, if you don't do this, you know, like anyone listening, have your affirmations, know what you need to speak over yourself and encourage yourself in and do it constantly. Do it frequently. When you see those gaps, those places where you might feel insecure or worried or, you know, feel as though you could perhaps be failing, build that confidence back up by speaking truth to yourself, you know, speaking it, saying it out loud. It is so important or writing it down. If you're someone that likes to write it down, you can actually write it down. And so for me, I think that's where it starts. It begins by both acknowledging that my value doesn't change, my worth doesn't change, you know, based on on any other metric or someone else's ability to understand that or see it. And then it also then trickles into then how you view other people. And if you can view yourself that way, if you can understand that you yourself are inherently worthy and valuable, you are more than enough just as you are, 
then when you look externally, you start to see the beauty in other people. And you start to see the humanity in other people. And that's, for me, where empathy comes in. The ability to actually understand the feelings of another human being because you yourself have endured them or you yourself can imagine enduring them. And I could go on for an hour about mirror neurons, empathy, and why the internet actually makes this far more difficult. Things like Facebook groups, things like chat rooms, things like forums, they don't allow for mirror neurons to fire in the same way. You're not seeing someone else's pain when someone writes a nasty comment. You're not seeing intention or hearing tone or understanding someone's desire and their humanity and their and, and being able to, to conjure up that true empathy for them. But that is for me the secret ingredient. It's it's empathy. And it's that empathy that arises, I think, from understanding your your wholeness and seeing seeing the 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 flaws not only in yourself that you're working to build and fill, but seeing the fact that everyone around you is struggling with their own things. They're enduring their own battles. They're going through life and doing the very best they can. Every step that they step sometimes feels like a stumble, just like it does for you. And they're not this perfect villain that you're putting on a pedestal in the very, very back insecure section of your mind that we like to keep, you know, tucked away and, and not admit that we all have. And I, you know, I, I don't know if there's a secret formula or a perfect recipe in order to achieve a fully abundant mindset, because I think <laughs> right. that we, we all come into this with our own baggage that we carry from our past and our own struggles that we've endured from the time we were children all the way through where we are now. And so because of that, our approaches to achieving that mentality are going to vary. But nonetheless, I think that there are some some key things, and it stems from your heart, and it stems from from you, and and knowing knowing your worth. I really do, and then extending that to others. Right. So this idea of like releasing competition and all the areas that it doesn't matter, <laughs> in which you're wasting time. But I want to talk for a second about the areas in which competition is still very good and very healthy. Yes. Yes. Where you need to be thinking about how it is that you can continue to push yourself further. Absolutely. So there are a lot of places where competition, I think, is actually, I like to think of it as like an accelerant. It's it's fuel to a fire in a lot of instances. You can look at big industries and look at things like innovation. When there are multiple competitors, products are changing, they're growing, they're getting better, they're improving, they're innovating versus a monopoly where there's no point to innovate or change or grow because you already own the market. So why bother? Um, in areas of our lives that are similar to that, it could be even when you see other people in your field doing really cool and innovative things, and it just pushes you that little bit further to actually think about, oh, well, what are my superpowers and what are my strengths and how could I change the way I'm doing X, Y, Z? Um, you know, and I, I think from an innovation perspective, competition is very powerful. I also think that competition can be incredibly beneficial when it's against yourself. So what I like to say is my biggest competitor is the woman I was yesterday. Like I'm competing to be better than I was yesterday. I want to be improving every day and growing every day. And I used to swim. I was a swimmer for a long time. I met my husband rowing. So I've also, you know, spent a lot of time on an erg machine. And, you know, in those instances, you're not competing against other people in the pool. Like despite what people think when they watch the Olympics, like, oh, Michael Phelps is racing against these other swimmers. The reality is that that swimmer is racing against their own time. They've done this so many times. They know their time. They know how long it will take them to complete that race in the pool, regardless of what time it takes the other people to compete. 
So they need to improve on their time every single time they dive into the water. Same with an erg. You need to pull harder and better every time you're competing against yourself. And so I love when, as a business owner, I look at how I performed last year, what my goals were last year, what my key results and objectives were, and see, did I meet them? And how do I change the way I'm doing things in order to innovate, in order to improve, in order to be better? It's why things like FreshBooks, things like QuickBooks, HoneyBooks, whatever it is that you're using, it enables you to actually build better processes in your business and able to streamline things so that you can run your business better. When you find something that helps you to do that, you're doing it better than you did last year. So you're going to be moving forward, freeing up more of your time to do what you love. Like that that magic and secret sauce, I think, in the self-competition mindset is very healthy. And I, I encourage it not only on my team, but I encourage it with, with myself. And, you know, it, it, it it has a pendulum that can swing both ways. You never want to be too self-competitive that you tear yourself apart, but rather that you, I think you celebrate the, the small victories that you make along the way and you always are challenging yourself to grow. But nonetheless, I think it, it's really valuable. <laughs> Sorry, I feel like I'm like dominating this. No, these you can ask what I need to ask. Okay, well, then I have a question about self-competition because I can definitely go to that place where I am tearing myself down, you know, even Mm -hmm. as an athlete. Like, this year, I haven't been able to deadlift as heavy as I did last year. And I'm giving myself a lot of grace there. But whenever it comes to business and your bank account and all of those goals, it a a backslide can feel really discouraging, right? And so how do you manage that whenever you're not hitting the same goals or things have changed and you're like kind of scrambling and you're not hitting that time or, or that money or whatever it is? Oh, I've experienced this very recently. So a couple of months ago, I, you know, had been struggling with health issues behind the scenes for a long time. This is something that now is more public, but for years, you know, I I never really opened up about it because when I was 21, I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And three, a little over now, I guess four months ago, I got my latest MRI back from the doctors at UCSF and was told with two weeks notice that I needed to go in for surgery to remove my tumor. And so immediately in a matter of what felt like seconds, but reasonably was more like days, my entire world came to a halt. So being someone that is a perfectionist that for very, very long was actually a workaholic and had become addicted to the adrenaline rush of being stressed and overwhelmed, which is an actual thing, I watched as all of those goals had to suddenly come to a halt. halt. All the projects I had worked on, you know, for HoneyBook and Rising Tide, they had to stop. All the personal brand projects that I wanted to work on had to stop. I want to work on a book. That had to come to an end. And I recognized very quickly that that self-disappointment and that sense of defeat is sort of a monster that can easily overcome uh, even the best intentions and even the best desires. And what I found was that in giving myself grace – And really understanding what that word meant to me in that season of my life, it meant that I didn't have to adhere to the same goals because my life had changed. It didn't mean I would never come back to them, and it didn't mean that I would never pursue them in the same way, but it meant that I needed to find space within my world to change my goals and to be willing to do so and to give myself forgiveness for not being able to work at the same way, in the same way that I was before. And that meant things like, you know, my goal and competing with myself meant that just because I couldn't, you know, this is going to sound silly, but I couldn't walk more than a couple blocks for weeks, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to try to walk a little further tomorrow. 
I, you know, walking, like, can we just think about that for a second? I was setting goals in the six and seven figures marks, right? For a business. And all of a sudden, what, a month later, I'm, my goal is, can I walk a block today? So just like think about that and let that resonate for a second because sometimes we do get so caught up in the minutia of, you know, I just, I want to be better and better and better and better. And we're chasing down this rabbit hole of our own success, not really appreciating and being grateful for the fact that our lungs are working and our eyes are working and we have two hands and two feet that can move for us. And anyone who's dealt with a chronic illness, and I should say there are some incredible chronic illness warriors in the creative industry. I have been floored and inspired and moved by them because People say, oh, you inspire me. I said, you don't, you should meet the people that inspire me because I can't hold a candle to some of these men and women that have endured things that, um, you would never even know perhaps from, from looking at, at what, what they, where they are, or what they've overcome and what they do every day. Uh, but nonetheless, I think it goes back to, to really understanding that you have to forgive yourself and give yourself grace and know that your definition of success and winning is going to be different from everybody else's. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're not going to be able to uh, get back to where you were if you feel a downside in your business or in your personal life or in your health or in your marriage or whatever it is and you feel yourself retreating a little bit. You will one day get back to where you were in a new way, in a different way. But your success should not be defined by the goals you you set a year ago as well, right? You need to be constantly evolving those definitions of success based on where you are in your life and what season you are in in your life and allowing yourself the ability to change, not feeling like you're locked into one particular thing. I love that so much. And I think that's where the intentionality of how you move every single day really comes into it. And so one of my mantras lately has been high intent, low attachment. And so I do have big goals, but I think what's even more important than my goals is the intention that powers the actions to get there. And so even if I'm not, for example, lifting as heavy today as I was three months ago, the intention to connect my mind to my body to those muscles is so much stronger in those lifts at 25 pounds less than they were whenever I was just like doing anything I could to get that weight up. Anyway... Um, how are you doing today? How, how is, how are you, how, how's your health? I'm doing okay. You know, it's been a long road back. I talk about it a lot in terms of it's, it's been a recovery journey and, um, I, I'm doing okay. You know, I came out of surgery and they were able to remove most of my tumor, which was such a gift. And, you know, minor complications from surgery, nothing super major. I came out with something called water diabetes. It's diabetes insipidus. It's different from normal, like type one, type two. It's basically my body doesn't uh, retain water in the same way that it used to. It doesn't produce the hormone that tells my kidneys like, hey, hang on to that water. You need it to survive. So I'm constantly in a state of being thirsty. uh, And I joke, I'm like, I pee like a pregnant woman. So all of my friends that are expecting, we are constantly making our quick trips to pee and we're okay with that. We're not ashamed of that at all. But I, other than that, um, you know, I'm bouncing back and I am not the same person that I was before my surgery. And I mean that in the best way possible. I know that, that the past couple of months have been uh, a, a really, really rough road, but I would never, never change this journey for anything. I feel very much more connected to you know, my, my family and my friends, my faith, what I care about, my business, even from the mindset of it's, it's about my legacy. It's not even about today's, like what I accomplished today. It's about what I'm doing for other people. That's going to turn into this, you know, larger legacy and larger ability for, for world change. And so I'm grateful I'm doing okay, but I, I, you know, it's been, it's been hard, but I'm really, really grateful. 
Well, you are a light. Your energy is shining real bright. So kudos on that. And wishing you like a healthy recovery. Thank you. So from the experiences that you've had, whether it's the surgery and you saying that you're a different person today than you were four months ago, or maybe even from college and or being raised by a single mom, uh, from all of your experience, like what are three things that you wish every creative entrepreneur knew? Or maybe even if you had to like give yourself five or 10 years ago some advice, like what would that be? Oh man. So some advice. I think I think this is ultimately what I would say. You have to make a decision very early on about who you want to be. It's not about what you want to do and what you want to accomplish or what check marks you want, what title you want, what job you want, even what business you want. You need to decide very early on who you want to be and why. What is the purpose for your life right now in this moment? And then from that, everything else will flow because oftentimes we do something just to do it and we don't understand the purpose behind it. But once you understand the purpose and you build your business on a foundation of purpose, you build your life on a foundation of purpose, the rest will come. It may not look like what you want, but it will come. If you're chasing after one goal and just one goal without understanding why and understanding how it rolls up to to who you want to be and the impact you want your life to make – then it will have far less meaning than if, if you set it up the right way. I also think, you know, I would tell myself at a very, very young age that um, once you discover that purpose and you know what makes your heart tick and you understand why you get up every single morning and go do it over and over again, it's okay if the thing you do changes as long as the purpose is, is something that you can feel confident in every single day. Meaning, you know, I, I photographed weddings because I desperately cared as I, as I moved in the photography world, I desperately cared about people and love and connection and relationship and, and human connection and relationship. And now I don't shoot weddings anymore. I build community. But yet again, I'm still drilling into this desire that people have to connect and be connected and feel a sense of companionship and and community in a different way. And my purpose continues to be at the forefront of that. I would also tell myself, look, it's going to be really hard. It's going to be really, really hard. Uh, It's not going to look like anything that that you could possibly expect for yourself. And there are going to be moments where you want to, you know, ball your hands up into fists and literally pound away at the very thing that you've built where you're going to want to give up and you feel like every step you take is a stumble and you're going to question everything. But don't let that stop you. Don't let that be the barrier that keeps you from taking the next step forward because it's only really failure if you don't get back up. Having resilience and and having grit in, in the things that matter are going to take you far far, far, far along on your journey in a way that just getting lucky never will. And it's not your successes that'll actually teach you what it means to be successful, but it's your failures that will make you appreciate the tiny victories and and show you what success should actually look like in your life. So I think that's, yeah, I think that's what I would tell myself. I think if the future me told me that right now, I'd probably just cry. (laughs) I kind of want to cry right now just hearing it. Just (laughs) have at it. Because, and those things are true, not even, you know, not even in the beginning or like early in the stages, but even you for me 10, 15 years later, like that shit still resonates quite a lot. Like those feelings never go away. And I think, I think the earlier you can just come to terms with all of those things and just keep pounding forward, 
you'll you know you're gonna be getting where you want to go even if you don't know what that looks like yet so I love that I love all of that thank you very much um what are you geeking out about right now okay so I mentioned being a nerd I hope yes. this isn't too nerdy. I don't think it will be. I think you guys will, will accept me for my geekiness in this moment. I mean, I'm reading a book about the science of scarcity, so <laughs> I think I'm with you. <laughs> Whatever you're going to say. Oh, man. I am loving Roger Dooley's blog. So there's this neuromarketer named Roger Dooley, and he wrote a book called Brainfluence, which I've read now I think four or five times. I have it next to my bed. Like some people keep certain books. Like, I, that is my book I keep next to my bed is Brainfluence. I love this book, and I, I really love I love what he writes about. But his blog is fantastic. He brings on a lot of different neuroscientists, marketers, just thought leaders in the business space, and um, it's. It's incredible. So I read this article today about marketing and using the visual fields to structure the way in which you market content to someone. And essentially, because of the way our brain works and the way our right and left visual fields reflect through the visual cortex into the back of the brain and the way we perceive that information and all of it, you can boil it down to say that if you want to convey something emotional, you need to put it on the left-hand side, the left visual field. If you want to convey something uh, quantitative, logical, data-driven, you need to put it on the right-hand side of a screen, of a stage, you name it. So even when you're teaching someone how to speak on a stage, the way in which they turn to convey emotion, being on stage left or stage right, should be different from the way in which they turn to convey a joke or a logical fact, or something of that nature in order to better resonate with the audience. And so I will, I'll find a way that we can share this with, with anyone listening. But this neuroscience blog, it just blows my mind. It blows my mind. I'm super geeking out about it. I, uh, I loved reading that article and there are so many more in there just about marketing and business and how the brain works, how consumer decision making works, and ultimately how it all rolls up into little tactical things you can do right now to change the way that content's resonating and conversion rates are, are, you know, fluctuating in different things you're launching. So yeah, it's awesome. That is so wonderfully nerdy. On yeah, a we'll, include a, we'll include a link in our show notes. I don't oh. know. I feel like especially with speaking, I'd be like, wait, is it their left? Is it my left? That <laughs> right. Is, yeah. is this is why I don't want to speak. Like, I, it's hard enough for me to speak while focusing on what I'm saying, <laughs> let alone making sure I'm standing in the right place and turning in the right direction at the right moment. Like, you guys want to see me flub over my words and look like a ridiculous person? That's not that. true at all. You are so good at it, Emily. <laughs> but I respect I your, your, false your confidence repellent to speaking. <laughs> I simply know myself. It's fine. It's fine. That's fascinating, though. Thank you so much for sharing that. Of course. Um, Natalie, what are you working on right now? Oh, so working on a couple different things. I really want to get on the ground. Walking, more. it sounds walking. like. Now How that far I'm are you walking, walking now? You're good. I'm I'm great now. Okay. Yes. In terms of, of walking, I've been back into even workout classes now. Oh, four nice. Months out, which has been great. And traveling again. So walking is something I've checked off uh, now, which is good. But uh, no, I'm working on a couple different things. I'm getting on the ground more and connecting more with the communities as they are in their hometown. So we're going to Atlanta. We'll be going to a couple different places, which I'm excited about. Uh, I'm also trying to get this book proposal up and running. I really want to write a book. This is my 2019 dream project. So uh, trying to kind of get myself into gear of actually creating that content. You know, it's great to have the vision. I've got to get my, you know, butt in gear and, and get stuff done. So 
that as well. And then just honestly enjoying enjoying the season. I know it sounds silly, but I'm enjoying the season. I'm out of surgery and spending time with my husband and our dog and just uh, embracing life as much as I can every moment of it. Wonderful. And what makes you feel most boss? Ooh. Honestly, I think it's looking around at the people in my life and knowing that this business has allowed this type of community to, to, to grow. That, you know, seeing, it's like seeing the faces of other people. It really is like looking around and being like, wow, because of Rising Tide, these two podcasters met and now they're at the top of the charts. And because of this thing that we did, this project now, school's going to be built in Lao through Pencils of Promise. And, you know, seeing those types of, of legacy style, uh, you know, accomplishments. That that for me is like, damn, you know, I, I feel like a boss. I feel like I've done something that I'm really proud of. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your story and all of the inspiration. I got cold chills a couple of times. Um, and I think that, I mean, obviously what you're doing is resonating with so, so many people and is so necessary. Kathleen and I see it for sure where, you know, Choosing this path is sometimes is a kiss of death. <laughs> but if you do it correctly, if you build that sustainable life as a creative entrepreneur like you were talking about, it's not. It's it's the perfect solution to so many problems that so many people face. And I love that you've um you've given our community too a way to show up and see that you don't have to do it alone. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And what you have built is extraordinary. Talk about a community. It's it's really extraordinary. So from one community builder to, to another, I mean, y'all should be damn proud. You've done an incredible job. And I'm just honored to, to get to share a little bit with, with your community. So thank you. I know. We didn't even get to nerd out on like what it means to build community <laughs> and how you the, the technicalities behind facilitating that. So yes. maybe we'll have to have you on again to talk about that because that is definitely something, especially that offline component is something that yes. we've really been passionate about. And if we are doing things online, how do we bring those offline vibes into that space and into our conversations and into our Instagram and all the places? So anyway, Natalie, it's been so great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hey, bosses. I want to tell you about the CEO Day Kit. The CEO Day Kit is 12 months of focused planning for your business in just one day. So Emily and I have packaged up the exact tools that we've been consistently using for years that have helped us grow from baby bosses to the CEOs of our own businesses. Gain clarity, find focus, get momentum, prioritize your time, make better decisions, and become more self-reliant with the CEO Day Kit. Go to courses.beingboss.club to learn more and see if it's a fit for you and your business. We'd like to give a shout out to our partner, FreshBooks Cloud Accounting. You can try it for free for 30 days, no credit card needed, and cancel anytime. Just go to freshbooks.com slash beingboss and enter beingboss in the how did you hear about us section. Special thanks to our sponsor, 2020, who is offering our Being Boss listeners a five-photo free trial. To start yours right now, go to 2020.com slash beingboss. That's the word 20, then 20.com slash beingboss to get five free photos. Thank you for listening to Being Boss. Find articles, show notes, and downloads at www.beingboss.club. 
Thank you so much to our team and sponsors who make Being Boss possible. Our sound engineer and web developer, Corey Winter. Our editorial director and content manager, Caitlin Brame. Our community manager and social media director, Sharon Lukey. And our Bean counter, David Austin. With support from Braid Creative and Indie Shopography. Do the work, be boss, and we'll see you next week.